from Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. Right now, we'll look at the movie marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going sharing some opinions from my perspective after decades of talking about Hollywood on CNN Entertainment Tonight and as a Hollywood Reporter columnist. With no new wide openings coming from any major studios this weekend, exhibitors had plenty of leftover fresh hot popcorn to munch on. It was all about the studios staying out of the way of Disney and 20th Century's mega-sequel Avatar The Way of Water, not just in its opening weekend, but also in its upcoming second weekend. This weekend, Comscore reports, ticket sales were just $37 million for the entire marketplace. That makes it 2022's second worst weekend, only slightly higher than the weekend of January 28th through the 30th, when ticket sales totaled $34.9 million. As for the year-to-date, Comscore puts it at $6.9 billion, that's up just 85% from $3.7 billion this time in 2021. On today's Box Office Autopsy, we'll talk about the frigid box office weather, and later in our Oscar Outlook Spotlight, we'll examine how the National Board of Review Awards may impact on the Oscar race. But we start today with Disney and Marvel's Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever, which topped the box office chart for its fifth consecutive weekend with $11.1 million at 3,725 theaters. It's done $409.8 million domestic. Universal's R-rated action crime comedy Violent Night was a quiet number two at 3,723 theaters in Weekend 2 with $8.7 million. Violent, which reportedly cost just $20 million to produce, has done $26.7 million domestic. Exit polls showed moviegoers like Violent, with a top two boxes, excellent and very good, score that seven points over norm. Its definite recommend score was nine points over norm, which means good word of mouth. Critics are just 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, but audiences are much happier at 88%. So where were they? Santa's not bringing the kind of box office presents exhibitors really need for Christmas. But at least there's finally a holiday release targeted to families. Universal and DreamWorks Animation's PG adventure Puss in Boots The Last Wish is the first family film to hit theaters in months that has a shot at performing. Its average first choice score is three points over norm. Top demo is 
under 25 women who were five points over norm. Next best is a tie between younger and older men with each of those demos three points over norm. With no direct competition for family audiences over the long holiday weekend, look for lively last wish ticket sales. Analysts are predicting 30 to 35 million at about 4,000 theaters, which would put it second to early predictions that Avatar 2 will do 60 to 75 million in its second weekend. Here's a look at Last Wish to help you decide if you want to see it or skip it. I am I laugh at death. <laughs> I am known by many names. The Stabby Tabby, El Macho Gato, the Little Whisperer. I am Puss in Boots. It's amazing to bring Puss in Boots back to the big screen. It's just nothing but a joy. There's a charisma that Antonio does perfectly. Welcome to my fiesta! This will revolutionize trouble. Watch! <laughs> He's bigger than life in everything he does. Hey! This is a party! Where's the music? All of the thrill and all of the adventures. Oh my god, I absolutely loved it. Puss in Boots is on the last of his nine lives. It's the first time that he knows that death is a possibility. The wishing star could get me my lives back. But every fairy tale character are after this wishing star too. I mean, you can imagine who wins. I just love the smell of fear. Hello, Mrs. We're looking for the legendary Puss in Boots. Have you perhaps seen him? How do you see him? Who is this guy? I'm Puss's best friend. And you are Soft Paws. Kitty Soft Paws. Oh, look at her. Am I doing it? It is more beautiful than you can imagine. It is super fun. What? What? What's funny? It just makes you feel good when you look at life through a positive lens. Adventurous, energetic, exciting, cute. It was for me the most spectacular of all this time. Hey, you want to see something cool? Good people, accept this golden gift from Who's in First? And all that You're still here? Looking ahead, there's finally some light at the end of exhibitions post-Thanksgiving deep freeze. We're now just a week away from Disney and 20th Century's opening of Avatar The Way of Water, which is still tracking through cinema roofs. Clearly, moviegoers are eager to make the return trip to Pandora. Here's director James Cameron talking about making the sequel. So the actors are in a very pure process. They've, some of them have likened it to, you know, black box theater, no set, no lighting, no nothing, just the other people. And so their emotional axis in the scene is not distracted by anything. It's just that other actor, you know. They have, they have that with each other. That's all they need. That's all actors need is an emotional reality to play within, you know. And they... They love that too because we're not stopping to lay the dolly track or to get the sun to the right position or get all the extras into place or, you know, get all the hardware back to one and get ready to go again. 
we just we just roll and we just okay all right let's do it again let's go back to one let's do it again and we just get into a session sometimes we'll record for 10 12 minutes straight maybe maybe five ten takes different ideas hey why don't you do this you know i'll throw them a line on the fly it's a very creative sandbox and the actors really love it um either that or they're very good actors and lying about it for years on end Avatar 2's average first-choice tracking is 20 points over norm. Its top two demos are under 25 men, who are 25 points over norm, and over 25 men, who are 22 points over norm. Women are lower, but they're clearly positive. Women over 25 are 20 points over norm, and women under 25 are 15 points over norm. With his own insights into the sequel, here's Sam Worthington, who returns as Jake Sully. I know that what Jim is trying to create is very truthful, very emotional and grounded tales of the tribulations of a family and what it means to be in a family and putting them in the most dire of situations, in a, in a, in a, in a humongous intergalactic war, um, filled with exploitation and, you know, themes that are almost operatic. And at the heart of it, though, is, as I said, a, a family unit, a family trying to survive, a family trying to get through the teenage years, a family trying to, a marriage trying to hold itself together. With all demos on board, Water is what movie marketers call a four-quadrants film, and it's expected to start to reboot the grim 2022 box office. No one movie can do that all by itself, but Avatar 2 looks like it can take a big step towards improving 2022's balance sheet. Media pundits are predicting an opening of 150 to 175 million dollars at about 4,500 theaters, but with tracking as good as this, a 175 to 200 million dollar launch seems quite possible. The early critics' buzz on Avatar 2 is extraordinarily positive. There aren't any Rotten Tomatoes scores at this point, but reactions from trade press critics and others who've had an early look insist that Cameron's done it again. One good example of this is from Fandango's Eric Davis, who tweeted, quote, Happy to say Avatar The Way of Water is phenomenal, bigger, better, and more emotional than Avatar. The film is visually breathtaking, visceral, and incredibly engrossing. The story, the spectacle, the spirituality, the beauty, this is movie-making and storytelling at its absolute finest. Filmmakers are also weighing in to sing Avatar 2's praises. Oscar-winning director Guillermo del Toro tweeted that the sequel is, quote, a staggering achievement chock full of majestic vistas and emotions at an epic, epic scale, a master at the peak of his power. Here's that master, director James Cameron, explaining how he works with his actors, a key factor in how well the sequel seems to be working for early audiences. It's all little details that add up to a fantasy character 
we just want you to believe they really exist. Well, and of course we don't. You go into a movie theater, you know you're being transported to a, a fictional fantasy world. But the more you can suspend your disbelief, the more fun it is. You know, I think I think people want to suspend their disbelief. They don't want to sit there and pick away at it. You know, they just spent whatever it is, 16, 17, 18 bucks to, to go have an experience. They're leaning in, you know. So there's a there's a kind of almost a, a contract between the between the movie and the audience. We're all just gonna join hands and skip off to Pandora together, and it's gonna be fun. There's already a Best Picture and Directing Oscar buzz underway for Avatar 2, and James Cameron as well, which points to a heated race with Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. And speaking of Oscars, let's plug in our Oscar Outlook spotlight and see what's happening on the awards front. The National Board of Review may not be Hollywood's best Oscar bellwether, but it's a good indicator of which way the wind's blowing early in the race. As NBR's Best Picture winner for 2022, Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick will get a big boost from some well-timed media coverage now, as well as at NBR's reception January 8th at New York's Cipriani 42nd Street, just days before voting begins January 12th for Oscar noms. NBR, which got started in 1909, began handing out awards in 1929. Now, under its media-savvy president, Annie Showoff, it's become a prime awards event by announcing its winners early and by holding a high-profile gala in early January. NBR's Best Picture Award is exactly what Paramount and Skydance Media's Maverick needed to get on track to be taken seriously by Oscar voters. Mainstream commercial hits like Maverick are typically ignored as Best Picture contenders by Academy voters. NBR's valuable media coverage coming early in the Oscar race influences perceptions throughout Hollywood, including from Academy members. Mavericks grossed $1.5 billion globally. It helped keep exhibition alive in 2022, and it's 96% certified fresh with Rotten Tomatoes critics. Its NBR win should keep Maverick flying high in the award skies, as the Oscar race heats up, it also helps that the Producers Guild of America just named Tom Cruise as the recipient of its prestigious David O. Selznick Achievement Award for 2023. Besides starring in Maverick, Cruise is one of its producers. Plus, Cruise is himself a strong Best Actor Oscar contender. Meanwhile, NBR naming Steven Spielberg Best Director cranks up the already potent Oscar prospects for Universal and Amblin Entertainment's biodrama The Fablemans. It's already many awards pundits' top prediction for Best Picture and Directing Oscars. Having NBR put Fablemans in the media spotlight now, and again January 8th, right before Oscar noms voting starts, can only help. 
Last year's NBR Best Picture went to the small romantic dramedy Licorice Pizza, and its director, Paul Thomas Anderson, won Best Director. Driven by NBR and other wins, Pizza went on to nab Oscar nods for picture directing and original screenplay for Paul Thomas Anderson. This time around, NBR's top winners are much more mainstream and should have a better shot at Oscar gold. Here's a look at some other key results. In the Best Actor category, Colin Farrell was already a top contender for Searchlight Pictures' drama, The Banshees of Inisherin. His NBR win is bound to keep the momentum going. In the Best Actress race, the Oscar buzz is that it's either Michelle Yeoh for A24's action-adventure comedy, Everything Everywhere All at Once, or Kate Blanchett for Focus Features biodrama Tar. So winning NBR is a really big boost for Yeoh. Looking at Best Supporting Actor, Brendan Gleeson winning NBR for Banshees is a major help. Since the buzz is it's either Gleason or everything's Ki Hugh Kwan. As for Best Supporting Actress, Janelle Monet, who won for Netflix's crime comedy drama Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery, isn't a big buzz Oscar contender right now. But Supporting Actress looks like a wide-open category, so winning NBR could help Monet stay in the race. It's also helpful to Netflix, since the streamer isn't as much of an Oscar player this year as it's been in the past. Last and always least these days are the Golden Globes. The Globes noms will be announced December 12th, and there's great suspense. Not for who gets nominated, but for whether or not anyone will still use Globes noms to campaign for Oscars. If you're listening to today's podcast after the HFPA has revealed its nominees, you know whose campaigns to watch to see if they're now promoting their Globes' success. No one knows whether Hollywood publicists, talent agents, and studios are ready to embrace the Globes again as the awards powerhouse it was before being torpedoed by scandals over lacking diversity and alleged financial improprieties. We always keep an eye on the Globes, so stay tuned for all the latest. And that's it for today's box office autopsy. We'll be back next week with all the details about Avatar 2's opening. And we'll focus, as always, on the latest awards happenings in our Oscar Outlook feature. So please join us again then, and thanks very much for listening. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for December 11th, 1978. 
Superman was flying on movie screens for decades when Superman, starring Christopher Reeve, premiered in New York City December 11, 1978. The comic book superhero first landed in theaters in a 1941 series of animated shorts and then went live in a 1948 movie serial. The 1951 feature Superman and the Mole Men, starring George Reeves, helped promote Reeves' now-classic TV series The Adventures of Superman, which aired from 1952 through 58. It was Warner Brothers' 1978 Superman from executive producers Alexander and Ilya Salkind and director Richard Donner, who directed The Omen in 1976, that sent Superman into another movie universe. It cost $55 million to make and did $300.5 million worldwide, sparking a new genre of mega-grossing superhero epics based on comic book stars like Batman, Spider-Man, and the Avengers. What now seems the ideal combination of director and casting could easily have gone in many other directions. Steven Spielberg was asked to direct, but wanted too much money, so the Salkins waited to see how moviegoers responded to Spielberg's new film, Jaws, when it went into the record books as Hollywood's first summer blockbuster, Spielberg moved ahead with his own projects. Guy Hamilton, who directed 007 classics like Goldfinger and Live and Let Die, was hired to direct when Superman was supposed to shoot in Italy. Then finance issues moved filming to England, and Hamilton left, since as a tax exile, he could only spend 30 days annually in the UK. Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, and Sam Peckinpah were among those approached to direct, but they all had prior commitments or didn't feel it was their kind of movie. Donner, who was going to direct Damien, Omen 2, agreed to direct Superman for $1 million. He then hired Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote Live and Let Die, to write a new screenplay. The Salkins intended to shoot Superman and Superman 2 simultaneously to save money. But as shooting took longer and budget issues multiplied, Donner and the Salkins were increasingly at odds. Richard Lester, who directed 1964's A Hard Day's Night, agreed to be a mediator, reportedly because the Salkins still owed him money for directing the Three Musketeers in 1973, and The Four Musketeers, Milady's Revenge in 74. By the time the Salkins fired Donner, he'd shot nearly 75% of Superman II. Lester took over, but wiped out any savings by reshooting most of what Donner had filmed in order for Lester to be credited as the sequel's director. New York doubled for Metropolis, and the Daily News building doubled for the Daily Planet's offices. Superman was shooting there the night of the city's 1977 blackout. Since Donner had generators for filming, he let the Daily News use them to publish that night. 
Later, Donner recalled with a laugh that cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth thought he'd caused the blackout by using too much energy. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove.